Let us just pray. Amen. Father, we just give you thanks this morning for your presence among us, for your goodness toward us. And we pray as we open your word that you would anoint us this morning and give us the ability, Lord, to bring your heart to your people. And we ask, Lord, give us ears that hear, Lord. We pray that we will not be dull of hearing, Lord, your precious truth, Lord. And we just ask for your anointing upon everything. We just hand this whole time into your hands that by your Spirit that you would speak into our lives afresh this morning. You know every need in this house. You hear every cry from every heart. Lord, we pray this morning that your word, O God, this day, Lord, Lord, is the answer in a world that is in chaos. And Lord, that there's wreckage all around us, that you're the hope of the very nations. And we just ask today that you would reveal yourself to us afresh. Your word is truth. Lord, we pray that that truth would make us free. In Jesus' name, amen. Joel chapter 2, Joel chapter 2 and verse 23, Joel 2 and 23, amen. Let's turn together this morning, Joel chapter 2, verse 23 through the verse 29, we'll read, amen. Joel chapter 2 and verse 23. Amen. Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he hath given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, <clears throat> the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. And the floors shall be full of wheat, and the fat shall overflow with wine and oil. And I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten, the cankerworm and the caterpillar and the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you. And ye shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God that hath dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be ashamed. And ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and none else. And my people shall never be ashamed. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids. In those days will I pour out my Spirit. And we know the Lord will bless the reading of His Word. Verse 25, <clears throat> if I could read it again, please. Verse 25, And I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten, the canker worm and the caterpillar and the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you. And I will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten. This verse here is sandwiched between a wonderful promise by God, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the former and the latter rain together being poured out, and an outpouring of the Spirit of the Lord equipping and energizing our sons and our daughters and our old men with prophecies, dreams, and with visions. Right in this little verse here, speaks of a restoration. There would be a time when God would restore everything that had been destroyed. 
The Bible says, Behold, I make all things new. A restoration or a recovery that's through the power of a living God. A restoration, a reviving, a reconciling, a recovery is all possible through the power of the greatest act of recovery every witnessed. That is the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ reconciling man to God, the recover of humanity through the power of the cross. But first of all, the power of Satan must be destroyed. God made a promise and it was fulfilled through the cross that he would destroy the power of the evil one, that is Satan or the devil, as a result of his trickery and deception in the garden. That promise was given in Genesis chapter 3. If you turn there, uh, because we're going to trust God that through the power of the cross of Jesus, that there is a restoration. In Genesis 3 and 15, God said here to the serpent, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. This is the first promise in the Bible concerning Calvary. And it says, It shall bruise thy head, but glory to God, thou shalt bruise his heel. The crushing defeat of Satan and the devil at Calvary through the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 John 3 and 8, it says these words, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. In Colossians 2 and 15, It says there that through the cross, Jesus spoiled principalities and powers. He made a show of them openly. He triumphed over them in it. In Hebrews 2 and verse 14, it says that through his death, he would destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. And last of all, because we know the end, of all of this in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 2. It is the Lord Jesus Christ that will take the dragon, the old serpent, that is the devil, and will cast him in to the lake of fire which burns forever and forever. It's through the power of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit that the power of the devil is destroyed and through the Spirit of God we can recover everything that has been lost or stolen. It's the years that the locusts have have eaten, the devastating power, the destructive power, the power of sin and Satan is evident all around us. But it's the power of Christ, the resurrection through the new birth, everything outside of this room. We see wreckage, carnage, and destruction. But in this room this morning, if you're saved, We see the evidence of the power of a living Christ to deliver men and women from wreckage and carnage, to save them and to set them gloriously free. There's a power this morning that's greater than all the powers of this world and all the powers of Satan and now all his demonic hosts this morning. It's the power of Jesus Christ, the resurrection and the life. There is no greater power than that power. You know, I walked the beaches of Newcastle most of this week have blisters all over my heels and my toes. But as I was walking one day, 
I was away down, a couple of miles down the beach. No one's about. And as I'm walking up, there's a man standing uh, just over to the left. He looked troubled. He's standing with a two-liter bottle of cider at half ten in the morning. You know somebody's troubled. No one's near him. No one's beside him. Walking down that beach, just meeting that man. And uh, I walked past. I tried to say hello. He wasn't really interested in talking. But I'm sort of the type of person I'll sort of ply on at some stage. So I went down in the Newcastle, headed to the bookshop, got my book, what I was going to read. I was walking back up and the guy's still standing there. And he looks, he looks a bit mean, but I said to him, well, how's it going? And he says, well, not great, but uh, finished off his two-liter bottle of cider, threw it to the ground. And I says, is everything all right? He says, oh, everything's fine. And started to talk a wee bit about where he'd been and everything else. 43-year-old man, and I says, you know, I just want to let you know there's hope. Do you know there's always hope? Do you know there's hope this morning? Do you know there's a world that has no hope? You know, and all that's happening all around us, it's just simple this morning. There's no hope. They don't believe there's a way out of the prison and the darkness that they're in, the, the unleashing of the powers of darkness in these final moments of time. Men have no hope. Don't know where to turn. Don't know who to turn to. Broken lives, wrecked homes. Not know. A man standing on the beach at half ten in the morning with a two-liter bottle of cider. You know that's a man in trouble. And as we talked, he says, well, there's no hope for me. I says, there's hope for every man. There's hope in Jesus Christ. He says, no, 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 you don't understand. There's no hope for someone like me. I says, listen, there's hope in Jesus Christ. He says, you reckon... I says, I do, I know, not do you reckon, I know. And he turned around and he says, but there's no hope for a man who sold his soul to Lucifer. And he walked closer and he says, when I've made a covenant with the devil, I'm telling you there's no hope for me. And I'm going to say there's a covenant that's greater than a covenant that you've made with the devil. And that's the covenant that Jesus Christ has made with the Father, that he'd give us blood on Calvary's cross to save every man. He says, you know, there's no hope for me. I said, sir, there is hope. There's hope for you. He says, I am a devil worshiper. I worship Lucifer. And he walked closer. It got intense for a wee minute. He was a big lad. And I knew I was finished if he went for it. And I says, listen, I'm going to tell you there's hope. There's hope for you, even you. And he says, there's no hope for me. He says, because when I was a boy, those priests, those pedophile priests abused me. And for my revenge, I made a pact with Satan. And I said, listen, those men don't represent Jesus Christ. I tell you, they don't represent the Lord Jesus Christ. He hasn't come to condemn or destroy. He's come to save and he's come to deliver you. And I want to tell you that there's hope and there's a covenant that sets you free. He says, do you believe that? I says, I don't only believe it. I know this. There is a power that's out there that's deceptive, destructive, that's real. It is not a figment of our imagination. But let me tell you, friend, there is a power that's in us and there's a river of life and it is Jesus Christ and he's come to set the prisoner free. Jesus destroyed. Here's a man, 43 years old, his life destroyed, standing on a beach, looking out into the ocean with a two-liter bottle of cider. No hope. Sold his soul to devil. But thank God this morning that Christ is able to set the prisoner free. 
and said, Alan, God can save you. You fall to your knees and call out to God. Wherever you live, wherever you are in this world, there's a God in heaven will hear you, and there's a God in heaven will deliver you. I said, I'm going to pray for you, Alan. Would you remember, Alan? He says, it might be a waste of time. I says, prayer is not a waste of time. Our God's able to recover. That's the whole purpose of the cross. It's recovery. Everything that's been lost, everything that's been stolen, every deception, every work, every power of the enemy, Christ has come to restore everything that has been lost. There's a power. And I don't want to overestimate or underestimate the reality of the power of Satan. But let me tell you, friends, there's a greater power, and that's the power of Almighty God. That's Jesus Christ. There's a victory for us in all of this. The locusts, the years that the locusts have eaten, the devastating power, the destructive power of sin and Satan is so evident all around us. But the restoration power and the reconciling power and the delivering power of Christ is more than a match for all the power of hell. How do I know that? Because I'm looking at a group of people that most are saved in this room this morning. And you're a testimony of God's delivering, restoration, reconciling, reviving, restoring power. You are a living testimony to God's great power. You are. You are the living epistles that this world will look at and say, there's something different. These lives are different. Their walk is different. Their talk is different. Not just in a law sense, but in a living reality that there is a joy in our lives. And there's a joy unspeakable and it's full of glory. And it's the power of a living Christ in a vessel that sees men and women changed by the power of God. There's victory for us. But there's recovery through the cross. You know, recovery is simply the action or the process of regaining a possession that something has been stolen or lost. A few weeks ago, we heard the tragic story of Trish and Steve and their house broke into them and they called and, and, and went, when I went round to their home, it's devastation. It's just, it's just ransack, it's it's just the, it's the thief, that's what he does. He ransacks the home. He, it's just destruction everywhere. And I'm sure for them as they walked in to their home initially, just to see the whole state of things, you know, everything of the emotion would run through your whole, and that's in the physical. But there's a spiritual thief. And he leaves nothing in its place. He, he, he destroys everything. You know, it's like years ago when the boys, when we had all the chickens and the wee fox get in. The only wee cute wee fox. No, it's just a lovely look at me. Isn't he lovely? But when he gets through that chicken wire, and when I walked around one day, I tell you, it was absolute destruction everywhere. Is there a recovery? Believer, is there a recovery? Something that has been violated or ransacked or devastation or when destruction comes? Is there a recovery? Friends, it's the thief. Jesus says the thief's come but for to steal, to kill and destroy. That is the 
Solely, he is solely responsible for the unlawful removal of goods and possessions, something that doesn't belong to him. And sometimes things just don't happen. It's a direct assault and deliberate attack of a real devil with real demonic forces working their wicked schemes and plot against the people of God. And the Bible says that be not ignorant of their devices. The devil goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Paul tells us about a full armor of God that's impregnable. Cannot cannot penetrate the armor of God because it's God's armor. He says, put on. There's an action. There's an instruction. By Paul, when we come to the last chapter, of course the first chapters are crucial to the last because he's speaking all about the glory and the victory of Christ and the cross and he's far above all principalities and powers. And then he says, saints of God, you're in a battle, but put the whole armor of God on and you'll stand against all the wives of the devil. It's impregnable. And so we're in a war. And in the war for at times, it might feel, it might feel, or it might be a reality that some need to trust God again for something that you've lost. There's some things that you've lost. Whether it's in the battle, whether it's in the day-to-day walk, whether it's whether it's maybe our, our fault through sin, or whether it's through our neglect, or, or through our circumstances, or through the busyness of our lives. Sometimes we lose something. We just lose. It's not what it used to be. How did that happen? Perhaps this morning someone's sitting here and with David you need to cry, Lord, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. David lost something. He lost it through his sin, but his cry was, God, restore. How many know that God restores the joy of our salvation? Perhaps as we heard quite a time ago from Gilbert about losing our cutting edge. Remember that message that we, we, we were a bit more potent in our walk, a bit more focused, a bit more fervency in our walk with God, but maybe we've lost some ground. Perhaps you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, I'd, I'd love God to restore my health. Perhaps this morning that's happening and it's very common and it's more common today is that people are losing their peace even believers. This is a day where we're witnessing the term panic attack. Anyone heard of that term? And yet it's so common and now it's become more relevant in the day that we're in. Why? Because the devil knows his time is short. Panic attacks are from the pit of hell. And once we were in a place of we didn't have anything like that, I've never suffered anything, and now we're meeting so many people that are experiencing I I get these panic attacks. Let me tell you, friends, panic attacks are not from from the Lord. Panic attacks are from the pit of hell. We have to engage in a real warfare, but he will keep in perfect peace. His mind is stayed on him. There's a helmet of salvation. And so maybe someone here this morning are suffering good three times of panic, anxiety. Maybe once faith was simple. You know, it was, just, it was just simple. I just walked by faith. I believe the Lord. And I'm just walking. And now everything's complicated. Now everything's confusing. Well, confusion is not from the Lord. 
Maybe you could see clearly once I'm talking about in the spiritual not. But now that just you just don't see like you used to see, Lord, would you restore vision, spiritual vision? And maybe this morning it's strength. I'm not talking about just in the natural, but there's a strength that you once knew as you walk with the Lord, you knew his strength and the power of his might. But today it's just not like that. Or maybe, friends, it's a marriage or a home. God specializes in wreckages. He specializes in wrecked lives, in wrecked homes, in broken homes, in broken marriages, in broken people. God is an amazing God. Wreckages belong to God. Wreckages, wretched people belong to God. God had promised in his word many times throughout this book, of a recovery or a restoration. In Jeremiah 27, 22, he promised Israel, they shall be carried to Babylon, and there they shall be until the day that I visit him. There was a visitation that he would come. And the Lord said, I'll bring them up again, and I will restore them to this place. God said that. You know when God said that, he meant it. And you know when God meant it, he did it, he carried it through. In Isaiah 57 and verse 15, he says, I am the high and the lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and the holy place, and with him also that is of a contrite and a humble spirit. What will I do? I'll revive them, the spirit of the humble, and I'll revive the heart of the contrite ones. In other words, that word actually means I'll bring them back again. I'll restore unto them. There's a reviving, there's a restoring There's a returning, there's a recovery through the power of the resurrection and the life. You know, when we look at it today, I suppose some might look at it this way. It's like David when he was led by the little Egyptian lad. I'm going to get to him in a moment, but he was led, this mighty army, David and his mighty men are led by this little Egyptian lad, this Egyptian man who had been just left abandoned by the enemy. But this, this young man, this Egyptian, this man led David and his mighty army to one of the greatest victories that David ever had. It's actually an amazing story. And I know we've read it many times, but when he brought, when he brought the Egyptian man to the camp of the enemy, in 1 Samuel 30, if you turn over to it and verse 16, because this was what it might feel like for some when we're talking about restoration in 1 Samuel 30 and verse 16, it says, when this Egyptian man brought him down, that is David, it says, behold, they were spread abroad upon all the earth. And here's the enemy. He's eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that he'd taken out of the land of the Philistines and out of the land of Judah. And sometimes that's what it looks like. Do you understand what I'm saying? When we're praying and believing and standing on the promises of God, the reality for us, when we look at it, it looks like the devil's won the day. 
It looks like they're rejoicing. They've got the spoil. Everything's over. But friends, but God. But God. In 1 Samuel, just at the beginning of that chapter, you know this this chapter very well, just to give a wee bit of context to it. But for eight years, David had been relentlessly pursued by Saul. Samuel the prophet, the mentor of David, had died. And now David's coming back from battle. And now things probably couldn't get any worse. After returning from battle, the enemy has invaded their camp. And 1 Samuel 30 and verse 1, it says, When David and his men were come to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag and smitten Ziklag and burned it with fire. We just see those three words. You know, Jesus said that the thief has come but for to steal, to kill, and destroy. He's come that we might have life and have it more abundantly. But here, the enemy comes and he's invaded the south. He's smitten sick like that means to strike it hard. And number three, he's burned it with fire. That's the work of the enemy. And verse two says, and he taken women captives and they, and they uh, uh, that, that were therein, they slew not any either great or small, but carried them away and went on their way. So David and his men came to the city. Behold, it was burned with fire. Their wives, their sons, their daughters were taken captives. David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more, no more power to weep. Come to a place of utter destruction where the enemy has just infiltrated, invaded, smitten, and burned. And you know, the Bible's a real book with real people, with real cries and real prayers. And that's what encourages us because they're men and women just like you and me. They're not different from us. They're not superhuman. They're real. Their, their life stories are led bare for us to look at. And in some cases, it, it lays everything bare. And thank God for it because it shows us what man is, but it also reveals to us who God is. And his mercy and his grace and his great power toward us. In Psalm 102, there's a cry of the afflicted that is overwhelmed and begins to cry out to the Lord. And it just says there, hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come unto thee. Hide not thy face from me in the day when I'm in trouble. Incline thine ear unto me in the day when I call. Answer me speedily. For my days are consumed like smoke and my bones are burned as a hearth. My heart is smitten or it is again. It says that when they came to sick like it was smitten. And here the, the psalmist is crying, my heart is smitten, withered like grass, so that I forget to eat my bread. By reason of the voice of my groaning, my bones cleave to my skin. How honest is the psalmist? I am like a pelican of the wilderness. I am like an isle of the desert. I watch and I am as a sparrow alone upon the housetop. Mine enemies reproach me all the day. They're having a party. We've won the day. My enemies reproach me that they are mad against me, that are sworn against me. For I have eaten ashes like bread, mingled my drink with weeping because of thine indignation and thy wrath. For thou hast lifted me up and cast me down. My days are like a shadow that declineth, and I am withered like grass. And if it ended there, what an awful end. But it doesn't end there. In verse 12 it says this, But thou, O Lord, shalt endure forever, and thy remembrance unto all generations. 
Thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion for the time to favor her. Yea, the set time has come. You see, there's a time. There's a time to recover. The Amalekites invade. While David's away, the Amalekites just, you know, I was just looking through this over the past a couple of weeks, and then it's been confirmed in a number of incidences, but the Amalekites are the descendants from Amalek, and Amalek is a descendant from Esau. So you run this right the whole way back, you find that the Amalekites are descendants from Esau. Esau and Jacob, the twins that were conceived in the womb of Rebekah, and in that womb, you remember when she prayed, she said, Lord, there's a great struggle in my womb. It's a battle. This age-long battle goes right back even to the womb of Rebecca. Esau, who had no regard for his birthright, you remember, and wasn't interested. He would sell it off for a pot of stew. But he took a wife. He took a wife from the Canaanites. This is important because, you know, there's no mistakes in, in Scripture. It's there all for a purpose and a reason. He takes a wife from the Canaanites. He also took a wife of Ishmael. And so he goes into the world to find himself a wife. And you know, there's consequences to that because we read the whole story that as we start to work our way through it, her name was Ada. You know what Ada means? And this is just a whole picture of the world. Ada means ornament, the attraction of the world. You know, the enemy just wants to present an attraction. But it's not real. He's a liar. He's a thief. The pleasures of sin, they last for a wee season, don't they? But he makes it look a certain way. So young people, well, it looks good. It looks, it's presented in a nice way. It's, it's so attractive to the eye. And so Esau went uh, and with Ada, and they had a son. And his son was Eliphaz, that means God is gold. He was getting the riches of the world. He was getting the attractions of the world. And then he met a lady called Timna. And Timna means to restrain. You see, brothers and sisters, when we go the way of the world, the devil will put a restraint on us. And there's consequences to it. What's born is a man called Amalek. What comes from Amalek is the Amalekites. Exodus 17, remember the story of Moses sitting, his arms are raised up. Who's fighting Israel? The Amalekites. Deuteronomy 25, what did Amalek do in the way? He took the hinder part of Israel, he attacked Israel. It was Saul who was instructed in 1 Samuel 15 to utterly destroy the Amalekites. Remember, he was, in, he was told, you utterly destroy them, everything, but they kept the best for themselves. 15 chapters later, who comes? Remember, when Samuel came to Saul in 1 Samuel 15, he says, it's better to obey than it is to sacrifice. You have not obeyed the Lord in destroying the Amalekites completely. You've just kept some of it. 15 chapters later, who comes to David's camp? It's the Amalekites. Here in Samuel 30, the Amalekites have come to steal, to kill, destroy David, a man who loves the Lord, he's after the heart of God, finds himself in a place of ruin. Saints of God, this morning we are targets for the enemy. 
because you want to live for God and love him, he'll come. It's a real enemy. It's not a figment of our imagination. He's real. It's a real devil. But there's a real Jesus. You know, we can, Martin Luther put it this way, we can be like a drunk man trying to get on a horse. Not that I've ever actually seen it, but I can imagine what that would look like. He gets up one side and falls over the other. Then he tries to get back on the horse again. What does he do? When it comes to this whole subject, we can end up sometimes going one extreme or the other extreme. And we don't want to go into any extremes. We want to keep it strictly Bible-based. But we do have an enemy. But we do have a real Jesus. There's a real strategy from the powers of darkness, especially in the days we're living in. There is an outpouring of wickedness. There's a strategy of the enemy to come against the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ. But we are to stand in the evil day. It's an evil, friends, it's an evil day. We are to stand. And now David is seeking after the Lord. What am I going to do? Friends, have you got something you need to recover? Is there something that has been taken or lost? Is there something in your life, something in your home, something in your family that you you want to see recovered? Is it a broken marriage? Is it a broken home? Is it a broken mind? Is it a broken heart? Is it a loved one? Is there something this morning that on your heart and the depths of your heart you're saying, God, I need to see recovery here. I need to believe you that there's a recovery in Christ from the, the circumstances that I'm looking at and it seems as though the enemy's having a party. Well, I love this story. And I love this story because of what David found on the way. He inquires of the Lord. The Lord instructs him. David, you go after your enemy. You pursue because you're going to recover everything. It's the most important thing. We can do nothing without his power, without the power of the Lord. But in him, we can do all things. And so, David, I just want you to listen for a few moments because this is really important. We've already touched on him this morning. This Egyptian that's found in the field. In 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 11, David and I and, and the mighty men of David, we read of their, we read about them and their great acts and all the great things that they had done. These mighty men. But they're going to be completely dependent on one weak Egyptian lad. It's just amazing. This mighty army is pursuing after the enemy. They're going to take everything back. They're going to recover everything. And as they go, they find this young Egyptian. In verse 11, it says, They find an Egyptian in the field. David brought him and brought him to David. They gave him bread. And he did eat and they made him drink water. And they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he, did, when he had eaten, the spirit again came to him. For he had eaten no bread nor drunk any water three days and three nights. Let me tell you something. I just want to say this to our young people. You know, they're having a party, and it all looks attractive. But this is what the enemy will do to you. You see, when he's finished with you, he's going to leave you lying in the gutter of this world. And there's too many people in this place 
that know that to be true. You know, at the time, I'm sure as he's going in to invade <clears throat> Ziklag, this Egyptian's with, with the enemies, with the Amalekites. He's going in. They're going to have a party. They're going to live it up. They're going to enjoy it. They're going to plunder the camp. They're going to take the spoils. Boy, this is so exciting. On the way back out again, you know, they're traveling on. They're going to get back and party it all out. But this Egyptian then, he, he falls short. He's not up to the task now. And so, you see, the enemy's no time. You know, at the end of it all, you know, the enemy's whole purpose is to completely destroy your life. He'll let you enjoy it for a time. He'll make sure it's good. Plenty of friends, people around you. The, the lights are shining. There's money in your pocket. Everything's going great. The ornaments of this world are, and the attractions of this world. But friends, let me tell you, just, just like that man that fell among the thieves, they leave him for dead. They're not interested. The enemy's not interested. His one purpose is destruction of your life. Young people know this. It has to be clear. It has to be said. The devil's a deceiver and he's a liar. And he presents things that aren't true. All the flesh and lights and all the bright. Just go behind it all and see the reality of the destructive power of Satan. That's why our suicide's so high amongst young people. That's why people are having breakdowns. That's why our institutions are filled with so many young people whose heads have been frazzled with drugs. That's the reality of where we are. Brokenness. And this Egyptian, at one time he was in the thick of it, but now the enemy sees no need for him. What we do? We'll cast him to this side and leave him for dead. David comes. What do they do? They give him something to drink. They just give him some bread. They show kindness to him. A cake of figs. Clusters of raisins. What happened? His spirit came again to him. For three days he'd eaten nothing. Let me tell you, this is one of the great stories in the Old Testament. This man whom the devil had thrown to the side as just a bit of dirt land on the sideway. He was about to become the leader of one of the greatest armies in the Old Testament to bring one of the greatest victories that David had experienced in his life. The purpose of God, the purpose of God for our young people. Think about it. One minute he's at the point of death. He's been He's been cast to the side. It's all over with. And then he's, he's lying there, maybe his last. It seems as though he's just at the point of death. His last few breaths, lying in the gutter of sin. Thank God he found us in the gutter of sin. Thank God he found us bleeding and dying on the Jericho road. What did he do? He poured in the oil and the wine. Maybe he's about to take his last breath. And he hears the galloping horses. And he hears men pull him up out of the gutter. Friends, that's what we're supposed to do. Pull them out of the gutter. We're in the last days. Go into the highways and the byways and compel them to come in. Pull them up out of the gutter of sin. Give them some water, some bread. Tell them about the goodness of Jesus. 
share the gospel with them. And then this man led the army of David and his mighty men into one of the greatest victories in Scripture. God's got a purpose for your life, young and old. God's got a purpose for our young people. God's got a purpose. The devil has one too. The devil has one too. But God has a purpose to lead you into the victory that there is in Jesus Christ. And so, whom do you belong to? And whence art thou? He said, I'm a young man of Egypt, a servant to Amalekite. Listen, this is what the devil will do. Listen carefully. And my master left me. My master left me. Let me tell you, friends, this morning, that devil's one purpose is to destroy your life. You have a life to live for Jesus. And ultimately, even worse still, to trail your soul into the very realms of a lake of fire forever and ever and ever without mercy. But what the devil cast aside, a wreckage, became God's treasure. He restored him. Number one, we need God. Our total dependence is in God alone. Number two, we have to trust his ability to recover the power of the cross has defeated all the powers of darkness. We need faith to pursue the enemy on our knees. And number four, we need to rejoice in this great salvation that our God is able to do it. Have you lost something? Something you once... Something you once had. There's a time to recover. There's a time to recover. And in him alone we trust that we will recover all for his glory and for his name. There's a time to recover. There's a time to recover. Let's pray together. Amen.